Write the name of every colonizer. Set on fire. Use the ashes as fertilizer. Welcome to Decolonization Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. This podcast hopes to explore a range of questions, including, but not limited to, what does decolonization mean? What decolonial actions are currently taking place? What does justice look like for post-colonial subjects? How does activism influence decolonial practices? My name is Edna Bonhomme. In this episode, I spoke with Brazilian artist, researcher, and writer, Luisa Prado, about her artwork, collective spaces, Brazil's colonial history, and decolonial practices. Luisa, thank you for joining me today on the Decolonization Action Podcast. Thank you. You're originally from Brazil. Can you describe the area that you're from and how that inspired you in your research? Yes, uh, so I'm from Rio, from the northern part of the city, not the <laughs> one that appears in the postcards, not close to the beach. And uh, growing up in, in Rio, studying in, in public schools in Rio, it's been, even though I do did enjoy it and I do still enjoy when I go to Brazil, more privileged existence than a lot of people that also come from even similar backgrounds that really influenced the way that I came to understand reproduction and fertility. I mean, seeing the struggles that my peers went through, that my my family went through in relation to, to fertility in general, not only accessing things like birth control or emergency contraception, these kinds of things, but really even the the struggle that it is when you want to have a child also. Do you consider Brazil a colonial state? Absolutely. Brazil, the concept of Brazil as a nation, Brazil is a settler colony in the same way that the United States is. And Brazil is a settler colony that is actively and currently pressing indigenous peoples, that is actively and currently persecuting and enacting all forms of violence against brown and black populations. So absolutely, it is a colony. It is a colonial state. You were recently selected for the Wilhelm Friese Residency Program for Artistic Research in Berlin with the project The Councils of Pluriversal Affective Temporalities of Reproduction and Climate Change. Can you please share more about this residency program and describe your current project? So I am currently the Wilhelm Flusse resident, uh, which is a residency that the Wilhelm Flusse Archiv has in collaboration with Transmediale, the Electronic Arts Festival here in Berlin. The basic idea for this project is to look into relationship between climate change and or the climate crisis as I think this is a better way to put it. So the climate crisis and practices of birth control, particularly uh, herbal practices. And I've been very interested in that since I've started noticing how white feminists, I mean, it's, it's really not something that should be surprising, but how so many white feminists have been buying into the idea that the climate crisis, one of the reasons for the climate crisis is actually overpopulation. And to me, it's very concerning to 
see that discourse and I think it really needs to be questioned and to be fought against. Can you elaborate about which feminists conflate the climate crisis with overpopulation? And who do they blame for overpopulation? It's very interesting because this talk about overpopulation is something that is not new at all. It's an argument that's been rehashed so many times to blame for so many things from, for instance, poverty in Puerto Rico in the 1950s, which was actually one of the things that allowed a number of population control programs to really take place in the island. And yeah, and you see that that kind of argument being that Malthusian, neo-Malthusian argument being uh, rehashed all the time for all kinds of different reasons. People have blamed wars and poverty and hunger and all kinds of things on overpopulation. And it is a very, actually a very efficient way to obscure the real reasons for, for those things. You mentioned poverty in Puerto Rico, and as we know, the island has and continues to have a complicated colonial relationship with the United States after it became a commonwealth in 1898. How has U.S. colonialism impacted population control policies towards Puerto Ricans and other marginalized groups? There's a big, big history of the relationship between fertility in general and Latin American politics. As soon as the birth control pill, for instance, came out, as soon as it was uh, released commercially in the United States, it's very interesting to see how it took a while for it to be approved in European nations because it needed to be tested and it needed to pass local local regulations to be commercialized. But in Brazil, for instance, it came out immediately in 1960. And that is one thing that a lot of people don't know about, but the Operation Condor, which was the operation deployed to connect efforts towards dictatorships in Latin America in the 60s, one of the things that Operation Condor was dealing with was actually fertility, because especially after the Cuban Revolution, the CIA, the United States, understood that a large population was conducive to communism, (laughs) actually. And so the the release of the pill and the deployment of these technologies is profoundly connected to, to that and to this context of the, the, the Cold War. With some of your work, you compare colonial Brazil to the political situation today. Can you describe how you do this? I engage with the the hateful discourse that Jair Bolsonaro, the unfortunately the current president of Brazil, has been spewing since really the 90s and the 90s since he became a public figure, and the way that he has constructed his career as a politician based really on hatred and vitriol towards the most disenfranchised people in Brazil. In this piece specifically, I show quotes by him. I show him uh, making his speeches in Congress and things that he has said defending the sterilization of poor people. And also he talks very openly about poor people, but what remains implied in his discourse 
is that he's talking also about populations and, and people who are racialized. I think very important to keep in consideration that he is talking about poor people who cannot sustain their children, who cannot financially uh, support their children, should not have children, and so on and so forth. But there are intersections between race and class that he is not mentioning, but that it's really like a dog whistle. And sometimes he's very explicit about that, but sometimes he relies on, on dog whistles. And uh, yeah, definitely it's uh, working through this history in this piece also means looking at where does this discourse come from. He's not the first. This has a whole history behind it. And in this piece, I kind of intersect those things that he said with the the process of colonization of Brazil, and particularly the creation of categories of bodies and peoples. And I do that by looking into things like the paintings that Albert Eckhout, a Dutch painter, actually made them after he went back to the Netherlands. But he was part of the entourage of uh, Maurits von Nassau, the Dutch governor of Brazil. And uh, Eckhout created this series of paintings that showed the peoples of Brazil. To me, it's such a, an interesting series of paintings because he always has, first of all, a man and a woman. So there's already this gender binary there. They always come in twos. And they show the first two paintings in the series are the tapuyas, tapuya man and tapuya woman. And these paintings became very famous because they kind of cemented in the European imaginary the idea of Brazilian indigenous peoples as dangerous, as cannibals, and this idea of the quote-unquote savage in the European perception. And to the point that these paintings are referenced in a lot of other artworks, they even appear as paintings in the walls in other paintings. So, um, yeah, and this is just like the first two in the series and there's several from from of indigenous peoples the tupis the tupi woman and tupi man who are shown especially her she's shown working at a plantation so and she's shown as like much more even the flora around her is not as menacing as aggressive as it's shown in the first painting in the tapuya because the Tapuya woman is holding severed limbs and she's surrounded by, there's like a rabid dog. And with the man, there's, if I'm not mistaken, a tarantula around him. So there's all these, like even the, the, the surrounding scenario is used to express something about these people. And the series continues. There's African men and African woman. The African man has a huge palm uh, right next to him, which looks like a huge penis, actually. And there's all these things that really create these these categories of bodies. And so this this discourse, this uh, these things that Bolsonaro says, they're coming from a place, and they're they're very yeah they're they're coming from a, a long process of colonial violence. One thing that I'm I gather from what you're saying is that they're different groups, marginalized groups that have been affected by the history of Brazil's colonization. 
the indigenous groups uh, and also African-descended people who came there vis-a-vis the transatlantic slave trade. Can you talk a little bit about the names of the indigenous groups in Brazil or if you know the places that African-descended people came from uh, when they arrived to Brazil? In Brazil, there's a very strong Yoruba influence, which, I mean, it's more or less present-day Nigeria, but of course those those regions do not correspond to also the, the way that states were created, the way that states exist right now. But there's a strong, very strong Yoruba influence. In terms of indigenous populations, depends a lot on the place. Rio, for instance, um, is Tamoyoland. It's located in Tamoyoland. My, my great-grandmother came from uh, a region that is Shukuru Kariri. There's the Guarani people, the Kiowa people, the Makoshi people, Yanomami. I mean, there's so, so many. Brazil is a huge, huge country. So, of course, there are many, many people. Amongst the African people who were taken to Brazil via the transatlantic slave trade. There's a lot of Bantu influence also, mostly from places that were, of course, the Portuguese also had colonies. So there is a very, a very big relationship between yeah, former Portuguese colonies in Africa and, and in Brazil. Speaking of colonization, how do you define colonialism? Living in Europe, I feel that a lot of people have a misunderstanding of, which is a lot of people, when I start talking about colonialism, say, but nobody's occupying that place anymore. You are independent. What are you talking about? And I think there is a fundamental misunderstanding in attributing colonialism only to the occupation of land. It is also the occupation of land, but it is a number of things. Colonialism, or coloniality, as as a lot of decolonial scholars like to, to put it, like Aníbal Quijano and Walter Mignolo and so on. So coloniality is a project of domination, and it is a project of white supremacy, ultimately. It is a project that creates a fundamental division between bodies that are considered human and that are considered fully human and whose lives are to be nurtured and protected under this system. And those whose lives become expendable and whose bodies and whose labor and used for the benefit of the first these bodies were seen as actually human white bodies. This extends to so many things, to, to culture. Uh, it is a project of uh, a cultural domination, of economic domination. Uh, to, I mean, to the, there is no way of extricating the process that gives rise to capitalism from the colonial project. Those are, are two, two things that are fundamentally connected. So... Yeah, ultimately, I see it as a project of white supremacist domination. Uh, You're a founding member of uh, Decolonizing Design, which provides a critical reflection on the politics of design. How do you, in that capacity, put decolonization into action? In decolonizing design, we've been trying to... I mean, each one of us has a different interest and a different area that we we work with. Um, We have people who are very involved with design like in a very practical sense, uh, graphic design and so on. We have people who are very theoretical. We have people who 
work mostly as artists, as is my case, and yeah, a couple more people too. First of all, I think it's, I really appreciate how we all go at it from different angles. And I also appreciate that we do have, of course, uh, common goals, which I think is very important. Because we come from all of these different kind of areas or of expertise in a way, what role does futures and imagination play in how you conceptualize or understand decolonization? Decolonization is fundamentally a, a, a project about the future, right? Of creating a future, of, of not even a future, many futures and many different possibilities for, uh, yeah, for our communities. Decolonization and ideas about decolonization isn't just a question of straightforward political agendas or initiatives, but very much creating community, collectivity, and thinking about healing as a practice. And of course, there's been movements specifically in South Africa, at Oxford with like Roads Must Go Down, as well as in museums where people have been really trying to understand the role that museums have played in stealing uh, collections from or objects and materials from former colonies, from the global south. One thing I wanted to ask is the ways in which uh, knowledge or how you have been interrogated indigenous knowledge and how uh, in your work as a kind of decolonial practice, uh, specifically with re reference to your work all directions at once. Can you describe how that piece considers or looks at decolonization as a practice? In all directions at once, I look into herbalist practices, herbal medicine, the way that people have employed plants and knowledge and passed down knowledge about plants and their uses for birth control and, and abortion. Yeah, and incantations for queer futures was actually the very, very first piece that I developed within a topography of excesses. I only performed it once and it was also right after Marielle Franco was murdered and I, I remember I I was conceiving a topography of excesses on the week that she was murdered. And after she she was murdered, I sat down and I wrote this piece and I performed it a few days afterward. Maybe it doesn't even make sense to perform it again because I think it was something that was very connected to that moment, to the really the anger and the despair of seeing what happened to her because that was clearly a message if that could happen to her what could happen to anyone else what happens with other activists who are not well known in thinking about the relationship between the rise of fascism and the colonial history in brazil what do you think it would look like or take to um, honor the lives that have been lost like marielle uh, and others who are not as uh, well known to a future that um, is more just for black people, indigenous people, uh, trans people, what would that take? I think what is really, really complicated to deal with about Brazil right now is everybody knows about this conservative wave. Everybody has heard of Bolsonaro and everything, but there is such an amazing the Afro-Brazilian movement, the feminist movement, indigenous rights movements, they are so strong right now. There are so many people doing doing amazing work in that sense. So 
there is so much resistance also. That's something that, that gives me a lot of hope and it's so beautiful to see. It's not easy. Not that it was perfect before. Far from it. We're, again, we're dealing with a settler colonial state. So violence did not start with Bolsonaro's government, but he has legitimized things in a way that is very, very dangerous. What does decolonization mean to you? Decolonization, to me, it's something that I know I won't see the end of, but it's something that is worth fighting for because it is a process that I think, first of all, looks very different in different places. I don't think there's one way of of doing this because, of course, all different places have struggles that are particular to how the colonial process, what kind of wounds really the colonial process inflicted um, upon that place and and that people. It is a process that to me is fundamentally opposed to the project of homogenization and universalization of uh, colonialism because that's also something. Colonialism is a project that aims to dominate. It also aims to homogenize and to, to create this universal notion of how things should be. And to me, one of the groups that to me is one of my biggest inspirations, the Zapatista movement in Mexico, is a pluriversal project. It is a project that aims, as the Zapatistas say, to create un mundo donde quepan muchos mundos, a world where many other worlds fit, really. I want to thank you, Luisa, for this illuminating conversation. Thank you. If you'd like to engage us in conversation or listen to future episodes, as well as to find the complete biographies of who we interviewed and links to all organizations and projects mentioned in this episode, please visit decolonizationinaction.wordpress.com and find us on Twitter at hashtag deckinaction.